Welcome citizens, you're listening to New Amsterdam Radio, the podcast for creatives. Here, thinkers and doers always have a key to the city. The mayor is in, so office hours start now. That's right, office hour starts now for another episode of New Amsterdam Radio, the podcast for creative stickers and doers. Global Voice here, hanging with everyone. You all, are you a you all fan or a y'all fan? I don't, my mom used to say wanna. That was her way of saying you all. She would say wanna. Anyway, it's about community. It's about talking and speaking with those who are doing the thing. And my guest did the thing. Some things we wouldn't even expect to be a thing. I'm not sure if you remember this, but a couple of years ago, there was a man by the name of Doug Hughes who made national headlines for flying a helicopter. Well, it was a gyrocopter, but I'm splitting hairs. Onto the lawn of Congress with a letter handwritten to every member of said Congress with some grievances. And even though it was a fantastical, if not a whimsical story, there really was a man behind all of that. And this is why I love I get to do what I get to do because Doug Hughes is my guest this week and he tells his side of the story in advance of his new book called Flight Plan. So it's going to be a good time. Make sure you check out that book. It's called Flight Plan, a mailman's aerial adventure and special delivery. We'll mention that book a couple of times in the interview. But before I get to that, as always, I thank you for making this show part of your podcasting diet. I understand you have plenty of options to make your ears feel what's going on around you, but you do it with New Amsterdam, and I appreciate that. Learn more about the show at newamsterdam.com, K-N-A-W, amsterdam.com, and you can follow the show on social media at New Amsterdam on Instagram and at new underscore Amsterdam on that Twitter. And lastly, patreon.com slash flobo voice you get to have early access to video versions of these shows and show notes basically the questions i have laid out for my guests in the format sometimes it's to a t sometimes it goes off the rails but there's only one way to find out and that's patreon.com slash flobo voice support independent entertainment journalism podcasting all the above without any further ado my chat with doug hughes Welcome back to New Amsterdam Radio, the podcast for creatives. It is I, Flobo Boys, the mayor in the mayor's office. And well, we're having ourselves a government-type episode. I'm just kidding, but you know what I mean in just a second. I'm being joined by a folk legend around these parts. One gyrocopter made everything possible. Mr. Doug Hughes, how are you going, sir? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's been a bit of a treat because I remember the story uh, almost passively. I was like in an airport where I saw the news uh, one faithful day. What, six years ago now? Seven years ago now? Yeah, 2015. Uh, 2015. You, you took a flight in a gyrocopter, which sounds like something out of a novel, but you flew out and landed on government land. Talk to me about that. Okay. Uh, the gyrocopter, it, it looks like a cross between and I flew 70 miles. I took off from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I flew across Maryland entirely, turned left at the Potomac, okay. and I went two miles up the Capitol Mall, past the White House, past the Washington Monument. Okay. Uh, I kind of had to climb a little bit at Third Street because I went over Third Street and I 
went past Grant's statue about even with the horse's head, the horse was rearing up. Okay. Right. I go past Grant's statue and I landed on the lawn just past Grant's statue on the lawn in front of the U.S. Capitol building. Okay. Literally in the shadow of the U.S. Capitol. Yeah. And it was not, it was not a, done on a whim. I planned it for over a year and a half. When I came up with the idea for making the flight, uh, I didn't know how to fly. Right. So, right. Not only did I have to get a gyrocopter, I had to learn how to fly it. And I had to work out all of the logistics, and then I had to work out all of the messaging. That included my cargo. I had 535 letters, one for every member of Congress, where I called them out on the issue of money in politics. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the messaging was really important because I wanted the message to survive even if I didn't. By putting it down in writing and, and having given copies of that letter to the local media, okay, I knew that my message was certain to get out. Right. Um, and I had a website. I was live streaming the flight from the cockpit. <laughs> At the time I took off, I notified 85 uh, different media stations, TV stations, that they could go to my website and they could see the flight as it was happening live. Okay. Right. My friend with the Tampa Bay Times, okay, was in Washington, D.C. with a videographer to see me coming in. Um, nothing works out as planned. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, the video was in and out, and I'm having to fly with one hand and use my other hand to reestablish my internet connection to restore the, the video. Um, but the main idea, the essential, was that I land without injuring anybody with the 535 letters. That was that was success, and yeah. that worked. Um, and the media did not want to talk about money in politics. All right. They wanted to cover the flight. And this was this was the thing that I fell into quite accidentally. Mm -hmm. They were covering the flight before they knew what it was about. Right. Okay. The media does not want to cover big money in politics because the media is big business. Okay. Their sole source of revenue is advertising, right? Right. And if you track down all of their advertising, it's directly or indirectly from Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Okay? So if a network decided to do an expose on how corruption in Congress actually works, all right, and they went big on it, they could like really peek out their audience and find out that all their advertisers have left. Right. Right. Because right. Wall Street does not want the average citizen to be aware of how the system works, okay? And, and neither Wall Street nor either party nor the majority of Congress wants you to know that we can fix it. 
I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I remember again going from memory. It was passively framed as a, a rogue letter carrier has gone too far. It was never about uh, what you were standing for and what was the purpose of your trip. Uh, and I'm so glad you had a chance to tell your story, uh, your book about that event and the events before and after that flight plan, a mailman's aerial adventure and special delivery goes into detail. So the question I have for you is why now? Why did you decide to write the book about that journey about six years ago? Well, after I got out of prison, okay, a phrase I never thought I'd use, okay, <laughs> right. in, my, in my younger days. After I got out of prison, um, Social Security only takes you so far. Mm -hmm. And so I started driving Uber nights. Uh, I knew I wanted to write a book. I made a bunch of false starts, but I knew that there was no commercial value to what I wanted to say about money and politics because there was no audience that would buy a book on corruption written by a mailman. Okay? Right. Books that are written by people who've got all these letters behind their name on, on money and politics don't sell very well. Okay. Um, so I'm driving Uber at night. And if my passenger isn't like hiding behind their phone, okay, and we start talking, uh, they typically ask me if I did this full time. And I said, no, I just go at night. They say, oh, what do you do days? I said, well, I'm a pilot. And I said, oh, that's cool. What do you fly? And I had a, a business card that has the picture of my gyrocopter just before landing with the Capitol Dome in the background. Right. Okay? And, and, yeah. and so I had that on the back of my business card. So I'd go ahead and hand back a business card and click on the back light so that they can see it. Okay? Yeah. And, um, and if you if you look up, oh, yeah. you can, that's that's a kind of a silhouette of what the gyrocopter looked like. Right. Well, the um, the person would look at the picture with the Capitol Dome and he'd look at me and he'd look at the business card again and he'd go, wait, you're the guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a good sign. I heard that so many times. You're the guy. I said, yeah. And boom, we'd be off and running. Yeah. And they really wanted to know all of the personal stories. Okay. Right. How is it your wife didn't kill you? All right. Uh, <laughs> what happened afterwards? Did the cops rough you up? Um, do you think they didn't rough you up because you were white? Okay. Yeah. Um, and what about, you know, prison? Did you, some people would remember that. They'd ask how, how that went. So it would always, and then eventually, if I just let them do it at their own pace, they'd say, excuse me, but I don't remember. Why did you do that? Oh, okay. Right. And at this point, because we had talked about the personal, there's a, a relationship, there's a rapport, there's a, a, a level of trust that exists. Okay. And they I start talking about money and politics and how it is the problem that we have to solve before we can solve anything else. Right. You know, what, what do you mean? So, well, climate change. The reason we're not doing it about climate change is because the law allows the oil companies to put literally unlimited amounts of money into elections. That's Citizens United. Hmm. Okay. Um, 
if you're looking at universal health care, okay, well, if that was done as Medicare for all, it would kill the insurance industry. So the medical insurance company, okay. If you talk about getting pharmaceutical prices under control, guess what? They can dump unlimited amounts of money into lobbying, and they do, right? Okay? To make sure that they have a monopoly and they can keep the price in the U.S. the highest that it is in the world, okay? You go down criminal justice reform. Well, the private prison industry doesn't want that. Education, okay? You talk about actually doing the things that work in the rest of the world. That is why so many countries are out educating the United States, okay? If they don't make the private education industry rich, they, it's killed, okay? So the way things work in Washington, nothing gets done unless a fat cat gets a whole lot fatter, right? And in my book, I talk about the actual mechanics of how this works, why it works, and the fact that there is in the Constitution and in the system that we have, there is the Achilles heel for corruption that gives a small, relatively small number of citizens the ability to get big money out of politics, theoretically in a single election cycle, okay, and make it last. Yeah. That's why I wrote the book. But right. what I learned from my Uber passengers was they didn't want it straight up. Okay? Right. Yeah. They, they found my story interesting. And when they were drawn in to the personal, then they were ready to listen to the political. And that's how I wrote the book. Right. It, it does. It is a book that operates on multiple layers, which is great. I love having the opportunity to read and reread uh, as we see fit. And uh, I, we'll get into the book in a second, but just a little bit of a, a personal question here. Um, if you could put a number to it, how many ways did you think you could possibly die that day? Whether it be the, the gyrocopter or being shot on site, whether being landed and being forcibly detained. Um, I was concerned about a surface to air missile. I was expecting that uh, they would scramble jets, which is a standard operating procedure. And I went, that's going to go over like a lead balloon uh, <laughs> because your jet is going to be flying at 4,500 feet at 450 miles an hour. And I'm at 450 feet at 45 miles an hour. And from above, a gyrocopter is very nearly invisible. Yeah. Right? So unless they had a, a a radar fix on where I was, okay? Just sending those guys out to look for me. They had never seen me. Yeah. Um, I, I thought, and I actually suggested in a letter that I wrote to the administration, I said, you know, if you send out a helicopter, send a Black Hawk, he's the military helicopter, you send out a Black Hawk, you can go ahead and escort me in. I said, but I'm not taking orders from anybody. Right. It was, if a guy says, hey, you have to land, Okay, I'm going to give him the middle finger. Okay, I'm not landing for anybody. You can shoot me down. Okay, but if they had orders to not shoot me down, but force me to land, then we were going to play chicken. That was the, the place where I, was, I thought I was most likely to get killed. Right. Because a Black Hawk helicopter, if he turns sideways, he's going to blow me ass over tea kettle, and there won't be anything I can do about it, and no recovering from it. Right. Uh, so uh, it could happen just as a matter of carelessness. 
that uh, that a pilot of a military jet or helicopter uh, would just get too close and knock me out of the air. Wow. Uh, reading the book, uh, once again, it's uh, Flight Plan, A Mailman's Aerial Adventure and Special Delivery. Uh, it, it does seem, going into it, don't judge a budget by a cover, I thought it'd be kind of fun and whimsical. But there are passages with a lot of pain there. You mentioned uh, the passing of your son and how that really was an inciting incident for you. Um, it, it must have been difficult to put the chapters together or did it flow throughout? Like, What was your, your process going into writing chapter per chapter? The chapter that you mentioned, my adult son uh, committed suicide by head-on collision, killing the driver of the other car. And that totally wrecked my mind. Uh, I was, I, I, I can't explain it because it doesn't make any sense, but I took it on personally that it was my fault what my son had done hmm. and that a complete stranger had died. And once I got into this really dark cycle of recrimination, it just got deeper and deeper for me. And I was to the point where I was committed to killing myself. I just hadn't decided when or how I was going to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had committed with a friend of mine. We were working on the issue of money in politics. And I, I decided I wasn't going to kill myself until we had exhausted all possibilities for politically advancing our ideas on getting big money out of politics. And I could see almost for certain that that was going to fail. Right. And that occurred to me that um, if I was going to kill myself anyway, I could consider any kind of a risky stunt in terms of bringing the public attention to the solutions to big money in politics. Mm. And I mean, what the hell? You're going to kill yourself anyhow, so why are you counting the risk? And I set up only two criteria that I wasn't going to hurt anybody and I wasn't going to do any property damage. Okay. I couldn't prevent the government from overreacting, but I was going to try to let them know who I was and what it was about so that they wouldn't feel the need to overreact, but I couldn't stop them. Right. Right. Um, so it was out of my son's suicide that I got into the frame of mind where I was willing to consider something that risky. And it's a quirk that continues to this day. Um, if I feel that what I am doing has the potential for good, I can totally disregard the personal risk. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it, it's not that I'm courageous, right? Okay, because courage is overcoming fear. I don't have it, okay? Um, and I don't know if it's a good thing or it's a bad thing, but nobody is gonna wanna go through emotionally what I did that put me to that frame of mind. Um, I was scared to death the day that I flew up until the moment that my wheels left the ground. And then I felt nothing, I felt nothing except for, I was still aware that I could get killed. Right. But once I was in the air and flying, I had no more anxiety. And that means to me that what I was the most worried about was that I was going to get stopped before I could do it. That's what right. I was scared about. On the ground, it was never clear to me 
what was driving me. Once I was in the air that day making the flight, I knew what had scared me is that I wouldn't be allowed to do it. And, and even though I didn't know what the outcome was going to be, I was once I got in the air from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, it was going to happen. And I felt nothing but peace from there on in. It's it's always interesting or fascinating how your body lets you know, or your mind or your spirit or soul lets you yeah. know when you're on that right path, you know, and things kind of wash away kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, uh, so we understand your story, but let's talk about the other side, right? Corruption is something that sounds bad, sounds evil, but really what is it? Uh, I look at chapter 19, you go into details about dialing for dollars and you can somehow justify that away as just hardworking politicians trying to raise awareness, but it could be the gateway to some other things. I identified in the book and I deliberately set up a memory trick so that anybody can remember. There are only three avenues of corruption. And when you plug those three avenues of corruption, you have you only leave illegal corruption at that point, bribery, straight up criminal bribery. Nobody can prevent that from happening. But the system works now where corruption is legal and baked in. OK, and that's the thing that we have to take away from Congress is the opportunity to legally sell their votes. OK. And guess what? The highest bidder always wins. And it's right. never you or me. The three avenues of corruption, if you remember, uh, before, during, and after. Before, that's campaign finance, okay? How politicians raise money in order to get elected or to get reelected. Mm -hmm. And that means taking away Citizens United, which is a U.S. Supreme Court decision that allows corporations to put unlimited amounts of money into elections, okay? That one is, is the most obscene example, but the actual solution has to be that only small dollar donations and only from citizens should fund elections because right. the election, step back, the US Constitution is a contract. It is a written deal between the federal government and the people who authorize that government to exist. Mm -hmm. It is a two-party contract between us and the federal government we, we made happen. Ideally. Okay? Corporations aren't mentioned in that deal. Okay? They don't have a seat in the table at all. Okay? We, we, we the people, remember that? We created the federal government by our authority, okay? It was a marriage contract between us and the government, all right? Well, there's a whole lot of infidelity going on because Congress is in bed with Wall Street and they believe that's the normal way they're supposed to do business. And it's been decades since we got sloppy seconds. Mm -hmm. right? that, that's what's going on, all right? So we, we flat out as citizens have the power to end the infidelity. And I'm not saying the corporations can't address how they feel about pending legislation. Yeah. The CEO is a citizen. He has a right to talk to his congressman and senator. The shareholders are citizens. They have a right to let, okay? 
But you know what? In almost every case, it's the consumer of corporate goods who outnumbers everybody, all right? And we should be the ones who are saying, this is how we feel about what Corporation XYZ should be allowed to do or required to do. Oh, Go ahead. I, I agree with you. Uh, probably a personal story for me, an anecdote, if you will. A couple of years ago, uh, ride-sharing services like Lyft and Uber here in California, it was up for a referendum whether or not you should consider drivers employees or independent contractors. And well, to cut the through the curtain, Uber less released basically advertising that just confused the voters. And so that says, hey, look, no, you don't need it. We'll give you bonuses. It's different. No offense to you and your, your particular work. My question is, is yes, ideally, the citizens may have a chance to take the government and make them accountable, but sometimes the message gets cr crossed or confused. Maybe sometimes people think they want something and they vote somewhere else. You know, isn't that a perfect contract on that end? Um. Corporations should be allowed to do what's called issue advertising, okay? Mm -hmm. A corporation should be allowed to, in West Virginia, talk about how good coal dust is for you, okay? If right. that's what they want to advertise, they have a right to advertise on the issue, okay? But a coal company should not be able to come out and say, we're advertising against this candidate, okay? He's, he has, we have, he has been accused of child molestation. He has been accused of embezzling public money. Okay. And so that, and, and all it is is an attack ad because this person is not for the coal companies. Okay. And they'll phrase it in such a way that they say he is accused of. They, they won't quite put themselves to where they can be dragged into court themselves. Sure. If they're mentioning a candidate's name or using his image, it should be illegal. Corporations oh, have, okay, not in elections. On issues, yes. Should they be allowed to lie? Probably, okay? But not entering into elections with unlimited amounts of money. Not for somebody, not against them. And it could be really easy to find. You don't use a name and you use a picture during, mm -hmm. an, during a campaign, okay? You, you want to go on and advertise how good coal dust is for you, that's fine. That's issue advertising. Yeah. Not elections. Yeah. Um, but campaign finance is the first area where big money gets their hooks in, into somebody. All right. And yes, we would need a constitutional amendment to take out Citizens United, but it can be done. There are two major groups I know the leaders of right off the top of my head who are working on reversing Citizens United, but getting it back to the point that we were at leaves what you were talking about, dialing for dollars wide open. And the average congressman of both parties spends one third to a half of their work week raising money for their next election. Okay. They can't do it from government offices. So there are call centers, cube cities set up within walking distance of the Capitol so that these guys can go out and spend two or three hours sitting in a cube in front of a computer, reading a script, talking to some fat cat where the party came up with a list of names of potentially large donors. And they're trying to get like up to the limit is like $10,000 for a married couple, mm -hmm. okay, is, is the max. So they're spending 20 hours a week 
raising money for their next election. Yeah. And let me step into that because when I started working with my friend Mike, we went, wait, there's a disconnect here that doesn't make any sense. If you're the incumbent, you've got like a 93 to 97% chance of getting reelected. The incumbent has a 90 something percent chance of getting reelected. And these guys have got to hate sitting in front of a computer trying to talk somebody into giving them money. Right. Um, and when I was talking to Mike about, you know, the fact that they're starting to get reelected and they're spending all of this time raising money, he says, well, why are they spending all this time raising money if they're certain to get reelected? And he went, I don't know. It doesn't, mm. doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. right. And, and let me come back to that in the solution. But that that hung me out. That's part of campaign finance reform. If they couldn't hit it out of the park with trying to get a $10,000 donation out of a single call, okay? If the most they could get was say $300, they go, well, this is a loser. I can never raise enough money if, I, if it's $300 a pop. I've got to address large numbers of citizens back home in order to do significant fundraising. And so instead of pitching to rich individuals, they're having to pitch to large numbers of regular citizens. Mm -hmm. And this is where I say democracy could break out. Okay. Yeah. This is conservative and liberals. If you're a Republican, you're going back to a red district, but you're stuck with that same, same problem. You got to pitch to large numbers of people about what they care about instead of pitching to somebody who's the owner of a, a major corporation. Right. Before. Campaign finance report. During, that's when they're in office. That's insider trading. Okay. Mm -hmm. Insider trading is rampant in Congress. In an average year, 20% of the members of Congress double their net worth. And they typically start off as millionaires. Okay? Right. You take any random group of people and say, wow, 20% of them in their spare time doubled their net worth, okay? And they're doing it consistently year, not, not always the same group of people, right? There are some people who are probably always on the list. There are some people who don't care about money who are never on the list, okay? But these people have got the insider trading thing nailed down to the point where they can double their net worth in a year, okay? Right. Mm -hmm. Because they have inside information, okay? These, there were, by the way, there were, I'm not partisan. I'm a Democrat. But there were Democrats who sat in on the early briefings on COVID, and they immediately came out and they bought and sold stocks knowing that there was an epidemic coming and positioning themselves to cash in, okay? Mm -hmm. It's not just one side, okay? They really like getting rich in Congress. The, the third aspect is the worst, okay? This is where they really get rich. It's after their term of office. Right. It's not a fixed number, but about half of Congress in every election cycle, the members who leave Congress, whether they lose their election or, or whether they voluntarily quit, half the people who leave Congress become lobbyists. 
Would you care to guess what the going rate is for a lobbyist, a registered lobbyist in Washington, D.C., who has congressman or senator uh, as as I'm going to say somewhere in the mid six figures, 500, 600,000. No, and again, they make $172,000 a year, I think it is, uh, as members of Congress. Wow. So it's, so no, it's way over doubling or tripling their pay. Yeah. Um, for the sake of time, it's about $2 million a year. Wow. Is what they go to as a member of working for a lobbyist firm. Or they may be working for Wall Street and they're negotiating with the lobbyists in Washington, D.C., or they could be with a special interest group and they're negotiating with the lobbyists on how many millions of dollars it's going to take to get something passed or to have something blocked. Okay. Again, the, the, the money, when I got into it, Lobbying in Washington, D.C. produces nothing except preferential legislation, either getting something included that you want or getting something stripped out that you don't want. Okay. It is a six billion dollar industry in Washington, D.C. per election cycle. Six billion dollars. Okay. That's where they have the money to pay these people. $2 $2 million a year. And they put these people, they got these people on the hook when they're in Congress. Okay. Because these lobbyists who are congressmen can go into Washington, D.C., to parts of the Capitol where you and I can't go. Mm-hmm. As ex members of Congress, they still have access privileges. Okay. So they go in to visit one of their former colleagues. Okay. And let's say, you know, he sits down and he's talking to somebody who was a newbie who came into Congress. And this guy who's now a lobbyist helped them out. They're buddies, they're friends, you know. And the guy who is a congressman is, is talking to the lobbyist and he says, you know, how are you doing? Because he's thinking, well, he lost his election. They redistricted and he wound up losing his election. And I don't know what the heck has happened to him, but he's got to be really embarrassed and depressed and and bummed out, you know, because he got, got his butt kicked. Right. Oh, I'm doing great. I'm back from Europe. I just bought a chalet in Vail. Okay. And my <laughs> daughter is going to Harvard, even though she's a dummy, but her, bought her way in. Okay. And, and and the guys go, wow, hey, that's great. I'm glad to hear you. You're so well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm working for, you know, a lobbyist firm, Smith & Wesson or whatever the name of the, you know, I, I'm working for them. And I only work a couple of days a month when I got to come back here to Washington D.C. to talk to you people. Okay, you see, you're making two million dollars a year, and you're working just a couple of days a month. He said, "Yeah, okay." As a congressman, that it's just that special stature that's, that makes me that valuable. He said, oh, "That's fantastic." He said, "I want to tell you something." He said, "This is off the record." He said, "But they're always looking for talent," and I told them. To put your name away. I said, when you decide to leave this crappy job working in Congress for a mere $172,000 a year, I, there's, a, there's a place for you in the company. Okay. Wow. And the guy says, well, you know, gee, that's awful nice of you. He said, yeah, and I got to say this. He said, I, I'll keep it short. But the reason I'm here is there's a bill coming up, okay? And 
I want you to vote no. And the guy says, well, I was going to vote yes for it. He says, well, we got a big plant and they've literally dumped tens of millions of dollars just into our firm alone and they're working with other firms. And they, this is how they want the vote to go. And then they say goodbye and he leaves. And so the congressman is sitting there going, $2 million a year. I was going to vote yes. If I vote no, they're going to record that. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to get reelected in a year and a half or not. I'm going to vote yes because I had a job. Mm -hmm. I just got promised a $2 million a year job. Now, for the rest of the time this guy is in Congress, anytime that congressman or anybody from that lobbyist firm comes in and tells him how they want him to vote, that's how he's going to vote. Because he's going to, he's, he's going to, I've got a maybe $172,000 a year job here, and I could lose it every two years. And I've got a promise of a $2 million a year job, but I cannot piss those people off. Right. Okay? This is totally legal. Okay. Because nobody promised an amount of money for a particular vote on a particular bill. Okay. He very carefully phrased it. When he went in there, he knew exactly where the line was, what he could promise, and at what point he would be violating bribery laws. Okay. And for the promise of a $2 million a year job that they may or may not even offer him. Okay. But generally they do. They've got him on the hook on everything where they have a client, okay, from there on out. Hmm. This is how the system works, okay? So it's before, during, and after. Campaign finance reform, insider trading, but then the biggie is the promise for a, of a job after you leave Congress, okay? And for that, they've got this guy on the hook, maybe for two years, maybe for four years, maybe for 16 years, they've got him on the hook because he's going to protect that job when he winds up leaving Congress. Well, uh, thanks for that, for breaking that down. That's not to get anyone frustrated, uh, but that is begs the question, uh, Doug, are you doing a sequel or are you doing anything? Like, how do you get the word out for new generation? Um, I am planning on doing a 48 state tour by gyrocopter it would be four months, 10,000 miles. Uh, I can't hit Alaska or Hawaii, but I've got a bigger gyrocopter than I showed you the picture of, about three times as big, which is still a, a VFR, visual flight rules, uh, mm -hmm. fair weather plane. Uh, if the weather gets bad, then we'll put it on a trailer and we'll take it up to the next stop. But the idea is a four month tour where I go ahead and get the word out about big money in politics and the fact, and there is not just one way, but my proposal for how we can actually get money out of politics. Um, do, you, do you remember a politician by the name of Eric Cantor? No. Okay, Eric Cantor would have been the Speaker of the House after Boehner. Okay? Okay. Boehner was already planning on retiring. And guess what? He became a registered lobbyist. Oh, well, mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> but Eric Cantor was 
the number two Republican in the U.S. House of Representatives, and he would have become the Speaker of the House, except he lost his election. But he didn't get beaten by a Democrat. He had a safe Republican district in Virginia, and Eric Cantor was a Wall Street toady. Now, Tea Party voters, Tea Party citizens, I don't agree with. But they are the real deal as far as wanting certain principles advanced, and they are not fans of big money in politics. They just think that it's Democrats and George Soros that mm -hmm. are big money in politics and corruption. Right. And then the Democrats do the reverse thing. They, they say, well, it's the Koch brothers and it's all the Republicans who are corrupt. Right. Guess what? It's across the board, both it's parties and the majority in both parties. But um, Eric Cantor was working for Wall Street. And when Tea Party people came in and talked to them, he gave them the middle finger and he was pretty openly contemptuous about who he was working for. So the Tea Party in the 7th District in Virginia said, you know what? We're going to take this bastard out. And they did. They organized nationally. They did fundraising. They put up a guy who had never run for office before. And here's the thing about the primary election. It's low turnout. Okay, mm, yeah. We're conditioned as voters to vote in November. Right. Both parties do not want us voting in the primary. Okay, This is how the incumbent has a 90-something percent chance of getting reelected, even when Congress is operating in the approval ratings of teams, 18 right. or 19% approval Congress, and yet everybody gets reelected. Okay. Well, in a red district, whoever the Republican is, is going to get elected. Northern mm -hmm. California, the Democrat is a shoe-in. Whoever the Democrat is on the ballot is the person that's going to win. 85% of the districts in this country have a baked in, sometimes gerrymandered, but oftentimes baked in complexion, either red or blue. Only 15% of the house districts could go either way. Right. So what happened was the Tea Party went, if we get all of our people to vote in the primary, which typically doesn't happen, so we can go ahead and put our guy in. Eric Cantor is out. Then when the election happens in November, most voters who are oblivious to what was going on anyhow are going, what happened to Eric? What's his name? Okay, this guy's the Republican. Boom. The guy's name is Dave Bratt, and he won. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't agree with Dave Bratt on a lot of things. But when he was running for office in that primary election, Okay, somebody commented that you could take some of his quotes. He sounded exactly like Elizabeth Warren. Oh. Okay. Yeah. And he, his real, real deal is Tea Party conservative. Okay. Right. But as far as how, whether or not Wall Street should be running Congress, he was right in there with Liz Warren. Right. Yeah. All right, so here, here's the thing. Eric Cantor outspent Dave Bratt. 10 to 1 in a bright red district, and he still lost. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Because no amount of money that you spend in the primary election budges the turnout. The voters are preconditioned to go, I'm going to vote in November. I don't care about those other peddling elections. Yeah, the playoffs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So 
here's what happened. My idea is what if we nationalize this concept? Okay. What if we had um, the Democrats in the blue district find an honest Democrat to run against the crooked Democrat in the primary? Because it doesn't take that many voters okay, in the primary to replace the incumbent with, a, with an honest challenger. And then yeah. whoever's on the ballot in November, they go on. And what if we left it to the Tea Party in the red district? Okay. What if we agreed? We agreed on what corruption is, what it meant, and exactly what reform is. Where Democrats and Republicans, the challengers and the voters agreed, this is what corruption is. This is what fixing it means. So we're all talking about the same thing. Okay? Right. And we nationalize the idea red and blue districts, that what we need to do is get a turnout in the primary because we're going to replace the person who refused to sign on to the idea of getting big money out of politics. That incumbent is history. We go ahead and replace them in the primary. And boom, it's a safe shot from there in the general. And you have a, we have a majority in Congress. Not a Democratic majority necessarily, or a Republican majority. We've got a reformist majority. Mm -hmm. where we agree on what we're going to do in terms of passing the laws that, that create a wall of separation between big money and our government, okay? That, that election with Eric Cantor proved if he could go down, anybody could in the primary. Right. And this answers something that I talked to you about earlier in the broadcast. Why are these people raising money, okay, for two years for the next election when they're certain to get reelected? They're raising money in case there is a challenger in the primary. They're not raising that money for the general election. If, they're, if it's a bright red district, they know it doesn't matter if they run Jesus Christ as a Democrat, he's going to lose in a red district, okay? Right. They're raising the money in case there is a popular local challenger that could bump the incumbent. And the parties are both there because the, the parties usually select, when there's going to be an open seat in Congress, the party selects somebody who's reliable. And when they say, when, when the Democratic Party, the Republican Party says reliable, for you or me, it means corrupt. Okay? This person is, is in the system They've grown up in the system. They understand that they're working for the party. They understand they're working for the money and they are not going to make waves. Okay. And if they play by the rules, they get to retire rich. Okay. If you don't play by the rules, then the party can throw you on the bus and they'll replace you. Yeah. Democratic party, Republican party, it doesn't matter. Okay. They are handpicking the people who go into Congress and they're scared, pardon me, they're scared shitless that the voters will discover that we have the power in the primary, okay, to take out the hand-picked incumbent and replace him with somebody who's going to represent us. Yeah. And in my opinion, the parties have for decades downplayed and conditioned the voter to ignore the primary election because you know what? That's where we can take back our government. 
And if we did this and we got big money out, okay, and the corporations no longer have a seat at the table, half those people in Congress are going to be conservative. Mm -hmm. These people are going to be philosophically, I, I don't like them, I don't agree with them. But if we did something as difficult as getting big money out of politics and we did it together, and, and the conservatives find out that the Democrats didn't break their word. They, they stuck through it. They actually kept their promises and they worked with their counterparts. There's going to be a level of trust. And things can get done in Congress again. Love it. Inspiring despite the challenges. The book, Flight Plan, A Mailman's Aerial Adventure Special Delivery is out now. Uh, Doug, thanks so much for your time. Just tell me more about that. And if anyone wanted to connect with you, if they have any other further questions, how to go about well, doing that? Um, I spent weeks thinking of the name of my website. It's, <laughs> you know, it's a joke. It's DougHughesAuthor.com. And, uh, you can get an autographed copy of my book from there, or you can, you can get it through Amazon, but not autographed. Um, and you don't have to buy the autographed version so far. Everything that's gone out uh, from my website goes out autographed. Right. Oh, nice. Um, and that that's the way to get the book. And the book is 90% entertainment and 10% message. And I literally did a word count when I was writing the book to keep it that way. Um, I think the story is good. I think it's entertaining. I think it keeps you uh, involved, The how I came to make the flight, and then what happened afterwards, because federal government was not amused. They came after me heavier than, they, than they're going after most of the January 6th um, in, insurgency. Unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, all, all they did was try and overthrow an election, and I threatened money in politics. <laughs> and that's why we don't Google to D.C. Hilton. Uh, thanks so much. <laughs> New Amsterdam, the podcast for creatives. This is Hobo Voice. Until next time, the city is yours. so much for listening to New Amsterdam Radio. Learn more about the show at newamsterdam.com. That's K-N-E-W Amsterdam.com. Until next time, this city is yours. <laughs> <laughs>